He was advising the churches. He was warning the churches. Well, tonight we're moving into the second main section of the book of Revelation. It's really the the largest section by far, as John shifts from dealing with things that are current in the churches at that time to writing about things that are coming in the future, revealing future events. Uh, Of course, the reason that John can reveal these is that, as we saw at the very beginning of the book, they're revealed to him. Christ sent this revelation to John, and John now is passing it along through this letter. The, The events that are revealed to him that he's going to unfold here. They're the events that this book is most well known for, the, the events that bring human history to its culmination as, as God deals with mankind's rebellion in a very decisive manner with massive worldwide judgments. Those are the events that, that John will begin revealing in this second major section of the book. Chapters 4 and 5, where we're at now, picking up in chapter 4, they serve as a prelude to these judgments. Before the judgments are described, John is given this vision that sets these coming judgments against a heavenly backdrop. One of the thing of note, or one thing of note before we move into this section, is that the church is not mentioned on earth again in this book. Chapters 2 and 3, they were written to local churches, churches in various cities of the time. And, and each one, each church was a, a real church in that city on earth at that time. Well, the church overall is never mentioned again on earth. And, and these um, problems that they were dealing with that in these local churches that manifested the universal church, they're... they're no longer in the forefront. The focus shifts to the end of human history. The, the, and the church on earth is surprisingly absent from the discussion. Now, that absence in the rest of the book, it, it supports a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, the idea that the church is removed from the earth before the final tribulation judgments comes. And I fully believe that is what will happen. I, I believe that is the case. I believe the overall teaching of the New Testament consistently points to the church's rapture preceding the tribulational judgments. At the same time, we need to be honest enough as we look at these chapters to admit that silence on the church in these last chapters of Revelation is not the same as conclusive proof that it's removed. Now, I'm not questioning a pre-tribulational position. As I said, that's the position I hold. It's a position that our church holds. But we need to recognize that silence doesn't demand that to be the case. I'm saying that because I want us to always have a proper humility as we approach Scripture. Even as we state our position uh, and our belief in, in this position, for one, since it's a conclusion that we draw from inferences in Scripture. We, we can't turn to a place in Scripture that teaches explicitly that that the church will be removed before the tribulational judgments. We, we draw it from inferences. So we should grant grace to those who come to other logical conclusions, logical deductions from Scripture. Uh, we should grant grace. It, the, the pre-tribulational rapture is a very different type of, of situation than, than, say, what we have with the many New Testament scriptures that explicitly teach that, that we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior to be saved. There, there's no question on a, a doctrine like that. The scripture is very explicit. 
Well, with the rapture, it's more of an implicit. It's inferences. So we can grant differences to positions and still call people brothers and sisters in Christ as long as they're striving hard to be true to, to Scripture. They're, they're, they're drawing their, their, their understanding out of Scripture, struggling with it. So, as I said, that's different from salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's explicit. We know that. So just... With that caution here, as I said, I believe the church is absent from the rest of the book because the church won't be on earth at this time. I, I'm, I'm personally convinced, and our church has held that position for history as long as I'm aware of, that we ex, ex, understand that's what the New Testament teaches. That's why we don't look for it from chapter 4 onward on earth. This evening, as we begin looking at this large section of Revelation, we're only going to look at chapter 4 in, in this prelude portion of John's vision. Through John and the vision he's given, we are taken into the very throne room of God as God is in heaven. We, we see the throne and its occupant. We, we witness events that are transpiring around the throne. This is a, a great vision. It, it's a vision that, that if we grasp it at all this evening, it will leave us marveling. My, my plan this evening is to first examine the scene around the throne and then consider the implication that this scene has for us. So let's begin simply by looking at the throne room scene as we start, the throne room scene itself. Now, I know I've mentioned it before, but I cannot help but feel sorry for any prophet or any apostle who's tasked with the assignment to record a vision of the heavenly scene. When we went through the book of Ezekiel several years back, if you remember, I, I mentioned this, um, how we saw Ezekiel struggle to, to find words to describe the, the things that he saw in his vision. Well, tonight John has a very similar struggle. He, he's taken through vision directly into the throne room of God. He, he sees things that, that defy capture by human language. What his eyes beheld is unparalleled by any daily experience we have. Uh, in, in this chapter, I counted the word like nine times. If John is trying to somehow explain what he sees, um, John uses actually a couple different words in the original Greek to give a bit of variety, but they mean like. It's clear that, that he doesn't have a vocabulary to describe what he sees completely. There, there's no earthly frame of reference. The, the best he can do is try to paint a, a general picture through similes. And for that reason, as I read tonight, don't get bogged down in the details. Don't um, let the details drag you down trying to perfectly understand because John doesn't have the right words to, to perfectly explain what he's seen. Rather, as, as we read, imagine the overall picture of what John is, is attempting to convey here with human language. Follow along as I read Revelation chapter 4. After these things, so John said, begins writing, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. 
And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and round the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the four living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. I will discuss some of the details, but, but the first thing before we look at any of the details, what we should see is a clear overall impression that, that comes out from this overall vision. The overall vision depicts God's majesty. That's clear. It depicts God's majesty. John sees this door into heaven and, and hears this voice that, that sounds somewhat like a trumpet to him. He, he's heard that voice before. If we go back to chapter 1, we know that this voice he hears is the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. And Jesus calls John to come up into heaven and look at what Jesus will show him there. Things that must take place after these things, after the things that were happening in the churches in, in chapters 2 and 3. That, that phrase starts and ends, verse 1, after these things, and then informs us that, that we're shifting to a new vision, that these things occur after those conditions of chapters 2 and 3. And uh, Again, that supports the idea that the period of the churches has run its course, that a pre-tribulational rapture has occurred and the church is no longer the center of God's program on the earth as, as John starts moving into to chapter 4. Uh, of course, John is not physically taken in heaven at this time. He, he remains on the Isle of Patmos, and, but he's granted a spiritual vision of heaven, uh, of, of what's happening there. And the first thing that John sees in this vision is the throne of God, the Father, with God the Father sitting on it. The, the sight's obviously stunning. It immediately arrests his attention. He attempts to describe the sight of God by likening it to brilliant stones, brilliant gemstones that, that sparkle in brilliant light. Now, it's hard to say exactly what John means. We're, we're not really even sure which earthly stones John uses. If your version happened to translate something slightly different than what I read, that's because we really don't know what stones he's talking about. Um, some of them were more clear than others, but we know they were precious stones, and, and he's using them as reference points to give an impression that the brilliance is shining forth. There, there's magnificence there. John sees God in his glory. 
God is sitting on his throne. He's surrounded by a rainbow. I don't know what to make out the comparison of the rainbow to a stone, but the, the connection to the rainbow of Genesis 9 is unavoidable. Remember, we went through Genesis 9 when we saw God judge earth and, and rescue Noah at that time, and then he put the rainbow in the sky. This rainbow reminds us of that promise God made to Noah. It, it serves as a, a vivid reminder of God's faithfulness for us to, to know that it surrounds God on his throne because God is always faithful to his promises. So, John's attention, first of all, is, is captivated by the, the throne and the one on it. And then the next thing to, to grab his attention are these 24 other thrones, these lesser thrones that, that somehow surround God's throne. And, and these thrones are occupied by 24 elders. Now I'm going to put it right out there. I, I believe it's impossible for us to determine if these 24 elders represent are representatives of the church in one fashion, or if they're the combined people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, or if they're angels. If you look through commentaries and, and study Bibles, you can find pretty convincing arguments for any of those options. Um, it's likely that some of you now, if you have a study Bible on your lap, will find in a note that says, these are representatives of the church, or these are representatives of God's people, or you might find they're representative angels of some kind. Um, if I personally had to choose, I would probably go with the idea that the 24 elders are representatives of the church. Um, the term elder is a term that's used frequently with the church context. The, and the letters that we just read were written to messengers of the church, so the church is somewhat in context here still. The, the white garments that they're wearing, the golden crowns that they have, those are all consistent with New Testament descriptions for the church. At the same time, this is one of those things I'm not going to argue very strongly over who these elders represent. Uh, they're not the focus. God is. They're, they're just there as part of the, the scene. God is the focus. John notes that, that the throne with God on it gives off both visible and audible phenomena as it stands on something that he says is like a sea of crystal or a sea of glass, glass-like crystal of some kind. Again, I, I think it's a mistake for us to try to identify specific symbolic references for everything in this vision. Uh, I'm not sure what the sea stands for. God is, other than it seems to indicate that God is separated on his throne. He, he's surrounded by indescribable splendor, and he's set apart, separated. That's probably about as much as we can say definitively from the various phenomena that, that John attempts to communicate here with human language. We, we do learn that immediately surrounding the throne of God, apparently somewhere between God and the 24 thrones, we have four living creatures. Now, these creatures there have a lot of similarity to creatures that are spotted near the throne by both Isaiah and Ezekiel when they're given similar visions into the throne room of God. And for that reason, we can surmise that these four individual creatures represent an exalted order of angels. They're similar to, if not the same, as the cherubim and the seraphim of the Old Testament. And like the angels of Isaiah 6, these angelic beings spend their time praising God both day and night. And the praise of, of these four 
beans that serves as the trigger for the elders to also join in their adoration to, to God. Whenever it says they, they see the four angelic beings praise God, the 24 elders vacate their thrones and they prostrate themselves before God and cast their thrones be, or their, th- their crowns rather before him. That indicating that, that they voluntarily surrender all the royalty and the dignity that, that they have so that greater honor can accrue to God. They then add their voices to the, the four beings uh, so that more praise is offered up to God. We look at this and the details of the scene are unclear. That, though, does not mean that John has failed to communicate. It is clear that the vision that he has is of God's splendor. God, seated on his throne, is awesome in the extreme. He is grand. He is marvelous. He's majestic. That is what John is communicating here through words. That's the obvious takeaway from the overall vision itself. The overall vision depicts God's majesty. Let's consider more closely now the songs that are sung. These, these songs, the, the hymns depict God's attributes. The hymns depict God's attributes. In, in verses 8 and 11, we have the first two of what will be a total of five hymns that are sung in chapters 4 and 5. We'll have three more in chapter 5. As John's vision expands outward from the throne itself, more and more creation keeps joining in to, to sing praise to God. The, the first two hymns are addressed directly to God on his throne. Uh, a foremost attention in, in these two hymns are, are several of God's attributes. We, we've been looking at, at some of his attributes during our monthly spiritual family nights, so by, by now I trust that we understand that his, when we talk about God's attributes, we're talking about elements of his character that are integrated with one another. They're, they're, they collectively describe God. Each attribute is, in essence, God viewed from a, a different perspective, looking at him from a, a different way. Uh, and so consider the attributes that draw the attention of these beings that, that cause them to give God praise when they're in his immediate presence. The, the first thing that, that rings out from the four angelic voices is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The transcendent holiness of God. It sets him uniquely apart. God is distinct. He, he is separate from all creation in his holiness. That, that's the same aspect of God's character that captivated the angelic beings in Isaiah 6, where when they see God, when they're around his throne, they're singing, holy, holy, holy. Everything else that God is, every other aspect of his character, his other attributes, righteousness and omnipotence and, and just and loving and merciful and so forth, everything that God is, he is in a holy way. His righteousness is a holy righteousness. His omnipotence is a holy omnipotence and, and so on. God is holy. That holiness is, is fundamental to his character. His, his holiness uh, appears to occupy the attention of any created being in the presence of, of God. 
God's holiness arrests the attention of any man who, who is given a, a revelation of, of God. As, as Isaiah gets that revelation and, and he's stunned by the holiness of God and Ezekiel sees the holiness, well, here John as well seems to, through the angels, be arrested by his holiness. God is transcendent in his holiness. Added to the praise of God's holiness is adoration, that he is the Almighty. God is omnipotent. In other words, he has all power at his disposal. What God chooses to do, what God wills to do, what God sets out to do, God will do. There is no source of contrary power anywhere in the created universe that can thwart God's purposes. Nothing can can hinder God's activity. He is the Almighty. Thirdly, the angelic beings sing of his eternality. God simply was. He always has been. God simply is. He is continually present. And God is to come. God will exist in the same way that he has always existed for all eternity, extending into the eternal future. As we've discussed on our family nights, God is the self-existent one. He is enjoying eternal existence in and of himself. He has no beginning, and he will have no end. He is eternal. So we have these three attributes here. They're aspects of God that that produce together the singular glory that, that shines forth. They're, they're aspects that, that cause these creatures to ascribe honor to, to God. That the four living beings around the throne are, are certainly among the most, if not the most, exalted beings of all creation. They dwell immediately in the throne of God, around the throne of God, in God, the presence of the Creator Himself. That's where they are. So that's why I can say they are among the most, if not the most, exalted in all of creation, and yet these most exalted beings of all created beings are captivated by the majesty of God, so captivated that they continually ascribe glory and honor and thanks to God. If the most exalted of angelic beings sing to the glory of God, the 24 elders add their voices with a second hymn of praise. The, the song swells as it focuses on, on God as the creator. All things exist because God willed them to exist. All things exist because God created them, causing them to exist. Creation displays the, the glory and the honor and the power of God. And, and around the throne, the, the most exalted representation, representatives of creation, they, they sing about how worthy God is to receive glory and honor and power back from his creation. Why is God worthy? The answer is simply because he is the creator. Creation acknowledges the one who formed it, the one who created it. Creation owes praise to its creator. Creation rightly acknowledges that its creator is our Lord and our God. The, the one who rightfully is, the, the sovereign ruler, the Lord over all creation. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. God is praised because he is the creator. 
the hymns offered by, by those closest to the throne of God depict his attributes. What an incredible scene. If, if we can let our imagination attempt to capture this through the, the picture that John has created through his words, this incredible scene that surrounds the throne, John has been treated to this scene as this first segment in the vision that, that will ultimately, remember, unfold terrible judgments. The, the judgments of the tribulation. It will take weeks for us to, to fully unfold the complete vision, but let's pause here for tonight and, and let this part of the vision sink in, the backdrop against which these judgments are cast. And let's ask ourselves as we think about this backdrop, what are the throne room implications? The throne room implications. I, I would hope that it would be impossible for us to read of God on his throne to, to capture a glimpse through the, the words that John has given us here of God's majesty to have our imagination get just a hint of this and for it not to make an impact on us. I would hope it would be impossible for us to leave here without there being some impact made as we've been ushered by John's vision into the, the presence of God himself. What we have read tonight should make an impact. There are implications inherent in what we can picture in our mind's eye from John's record of his vision. Tonight, what I want to finish with is focus our attention on two specific implications. First, let's observe that everything centers on God. That may seem simplistic, but think about it. Everything centers on God. God is obviously in the center of John's vision. He is the focus of all the other beings. You've got God on his throne, four creatures arranged around him, 24 elders around him. He is the center. As I mentioned a few moments ago, these 28 beings, these four angelic beings and the 24 elders, combined they have to be listed among the, the most exalted beings of all creation. They're granted the unique privilege of, of being closest in position to the throne of God. They have the closest position occupied by any members of creation. And what John has shown us is that these most exalted of beings are entirely focused on God. Not only are they focused on God, but they are also devoted to worshiping God. Their, their nearness to the throne of God inspires them to praise him. They, they raise up and praise God. Though those who can see God most clearly ascribe glory and honor to, to him. The 24 elders fall down before him in, in humble worship. The four angelic beings, they, they sing praise and adoration. Worship is the center of their activity, and that activity centers on God. He is the object of their worship the sole object of their worship. Well, if, if such becomes the primary, maybe even the sole activity uh, of those immediately around the throne of God, then I submit that it is, worship is clearly the most important task that created beings can undertake. These most exalted beings of all creation center their existence on worship. Worship. 
It must be the most important task that created beings can undertake. Worship, then, should be central for us as well. As created beings, as part of creation, we should center our lives on the worship of our Creator. That the worship of God should be our central focus. We are creatures worshiping our Creator. How can we center our lives on worship? How can we center our lives on God? How can we make worship the the center of our focus? I'll answer quick with one word. Planning. Planning. That's how. I had a client that I worked for in the corporate world that loved to say, fail to plan, plan to fail. Whenever we fail to plan, we will fail, is his point. Well, we must plan our worship. It won't just happen. We must plan for that. That means we, we schedule it into our lives. Let worship be the activity that everything else we do has to fit around. Put that into the schedule first. Based upon what we see happening around the throne of God in our chapter, I think we can even go so far as to say that to the extent that anything else pushes worship aside in our lives, to that extent we are failing to reach our highest potential of our humanity. We were created to have God at the center of our lives. We were created to worship Not only do we need to schedule worship into our lives, but we also need to prepare for it in a way that shows that it is important. We we must arrange our lives so that we arrive early for worship. We must arrange our sleep so that we arrive rested for worship. We need to push as many distractions as possible aside when we start to worship. Center ourselves, our minds, our bodies. Center ourselves on worship. In other words, center ourselves on God. We can learn this lesson from these representatives that occupy these privileged positions near the throne of God. God is the center of everything. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Worship. Everything centers on God. That's the first implication of John's throne room vision. The the second implication is God is the sovereign ruler. He is the sovereign ruler. I want you to ask yourself, why is John given this vision of God sitting on his throne? Why does this sight serve as a prelude to the, the fearsome judgments that are coming? They, in fact, if you think about it, these judgments that are coming, they make it clear that, that God is not inactive. So, so the sitting here on, on the throne does not indicate that God is resting, that he is finished. Rather, we have God sitting on his throne as a sovereign ruler. The king is sitting in judgment. He is Lord over creation. He rightfully judges those who live in his creation. He, even when the judgments that he hands down are, are severe beyond what, frankly, our lives have enabled us to fully comprehend, these fearsome judgments that, that are coming, we know 
that they are coming from one who has the right to issue them. They also come from one who is holy. Holy, holy, holy. So in his administration of judgments, he is holy. They come from one who will receive glory and honor through his judgments. As we consider the, this awesome picture of God as the sovereign ruler over the, the final tribulation judgments, we need to recognize that, that God is the sovereign ruler now as well. After all, look at the, the hymn that was sung here. He who was and who is and who is to come. God has not changed. Rather, we exist and we're created by God. That, that means, of, as we've stated so many times, that everything which we encounter now in this life, everything that, that comes upon us in this creation, is under God's sovereign control. It's not an accident. Our circumstances may, at times, appear severe and, and hard. Our circumstances at other times may appear gentle and easy. Our circumstances, most times, are probably somewhere in between. But all of our circumstances are under the sovereign rule of God. He has directed our circumstances by the righteous, holy decrees as the all-powerful creator. What, what we see from our text this evening is that God is the sovereign ruler. And, and that should result in our praise and adoration, regardless of our immediate circumstances. Our circumstances do not determine our worship. Our circumstances do not determine God's honor and glory. God's sovereignty determines our worship. God's sovereignty determines his honor and glory. He is worthier of our worship whether things are going easy in our lives or whether things are extremely difficult. God is worthy of our worship because he is our sovereign ruler. He's the sovereign ruler of all creation. That is the second implication of our text here this evening. Everything centers on God and God is the sovereign ruler. Those are the implications that, that come forth from this vision that we have here of the throne room of God. Now, if we put those two things together, I, I would suggest that the, the main idea that we can take away with us this evening as we leave this text here tonight is that worship is our proper response to our Creator. Worship is the proper response. We are creatures who ought to be worshiping our Creator. It's our proper response, regardless of any circumstance. So let me ask you, are you worshiping your creator? Are you worshiping him tonight? Are you worshiping him with your life? Are you worshiping him in all circumstances? Worship means ascribing glory and honor to God with your life. It means proclaiming his worthiness with your lips. It means bowing your will before his worthiness. Worship. Worship is our proper response. I trust that as we've spent a rather brief time in this first part of this really great vision that, that John's received, the, the time 
has nonetheless been sufficient to excite our imaginations, to give us just a glimpse through these words that John gave of the majesty of our God. And we've seen through these words, our creator God is sitting on his throne, ruling his creation. Worship is our proper response. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing privilege it is to be able to have this 